Good morning. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Roy Regals before, but let me tell you about him. Roy was a college football player for the University of California, Golden Bears. 1929, Cal was playing the Georgia Tech, uh, whatever they are, Bumblebees, I don't know. Um, Hornets, that's where they are. <laughs> I guess, I don't know. Um, I don't know the Southern schools. Anyway, they were playing them in the Rose Bowl, and in that game, Roy became famous for a particular play. So Regals played on both the offensive and defensive sides of the ball, because that's kind of what you did in the 20s. And uh, there was uh, partway through the second quarter, the Georgia Tech running back fumbled the ball, and Roy picked it up and started running. And they were only about 30 yards away from the end zone, but something happened, and Roy got turned around, and he kept running, but this time he was heading towards the opposite end zone. Um, he probably thought this was the longest 30-yard run ever. Uh, the announcer on the radio said during the run, what am I seeing? What's wrong with me? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Um, one of his teammates named Benny Lom, who was a quarterback, uh, apparently also playing defense, but he eventually caught up with him and stopped him before he could cross the goal line. Uh, but Cal had the ball, um, but they were forced to punt and ended up getting blocked by Georgia Tech, and they got a safety and took the lead. Uh, at halftime, everybody went in the locker room and sat on the benches, everybody except for Regals, because he put a blanket over his shoulder, sat in a quarter, corner, and just cried into his hands. And the coach really didn't say a whole lot during halftime. Um, but as they were preparing to go back out, he simply said, men, the same team that played the first half will start the second. So all the other players, they got up and started going out. But Roy didn't. Uh, he didn't. He didn't move. The coach went over and asked him, Roy, didn't you hear me? I said, the same team that started the first half will start the second. And uh, he said, coach, I, I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined uh, you, I've ruined the University of California, and I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. And the coach, he reached out, put his hand on Regal's shoulder and said to him, Roy, get up and go on back. The game's only half over. And so Regal's did. He, he went up and played, played very well. They ended up losing, but he played really well. He blocked a, a punt from Georgia Tech as well. Roy's coach gave him a second chance. Second chance to go back out there, show people who he was, which was a very good football player. And today, as we continue our sermon series, we're going to see how one of God's prophets was given a second chance. We've been traveling through the Old Testament book of Jonah, and so give a quick recap of the events so far. In chapter 1, we saw that God called, called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, which was capital of the Assyrian Empire. And... Uh, he was to preach against them because what they were doing was evil in God's sight. But instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah ran away from the Lord, chartering a ship to go to the farthest place that he could think of in the opposite direction. But as, you, as we saw, you can't outrun God. And the Lord hurled a devastating storm at the ship. Eventually, Jonah was discovered to be the one who was causing the storm or the reason the storm was there. And he got thrown overboard and was swallowed by a great fish that God had sent to him. And he was in that fish for three days and three nights. Probably had some time to think and contemplate life's mysteries while he was there. Um, but in chapter 2, we saw the prayer that Jonah offered to the Lord, moving from the hopelessness of the depths closing in on him to the praise of knowing that God could still hear his prayers and was with him. Even in the dark, deepest darkness, we see that God's still with us. 
Jonah says that he will proclaim that salvation comes from the Lord. And that's where we left off. And I've got to apologize. I totally forgot to put in the last verse of chapter 2 in our our study. So that's what we're going to do right now is read uh, verse 10 of chapter 2 in Jonah, which says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I love this book. I can't believe I forgot that on Thursday. Um, Anyway. So Jonah ran from God. He gets swallowed by the fish. Now the fish has vomited him up on dry land. But he's about to get a second chance. I love the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. I think it's a lovely movie. It's the story of a weatherman who gets caught in a town of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania during a blizzard. And he keeps reliving the same day, Groundhog Day, over and over again. The director, Harold Ramis, once believed or once said that he believed that Murray's character, Phil, was caught in the time loop for over 30 years. Um, but that's what happened. He relived that same day over and over until he finally figured out that he needed to help others instead of him, himself or something like that. But the legacy of the movie, though, has become pretty impressive. I mean, it seems like nowadays when people do something repetitive or, uh, you know, they feel like you've done something over and over, they say something like, well, it's Groundhog Day, right? Jonah probably felt a little bit like Groundhog Day at the beginning of chapter 3. Verse 1 and verse 2 say that the word of the Lord, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So if you remember from the first week when we were looking at chapter 1, you saw pretty close to the same message being given to Jonah from God where it said in Jonah 1.1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Obviously, it's not the exact same, but the command by God and the idea within it are. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, preach against it, proclaim that message that I'm giving you. And again, if you remember from the first week where it says uh, go, it's actually two Hebrew words. It's arise and go. Gives you that impression that you need to go and you need to go now. So it is arise, go, and proclaim or preach. Where's Jonah supposed to go? To Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire's capital city where his life could possibly be in danger for preaching this message against them. So in chapter 1, we saw Jonah arise and go the other way. But what does he do this time? Well, in verse 3, it says that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord uh, and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So Jonah obeys the Lord. He travels to Nineveh. Here's a map of the region. And uh, so where that arrow is is roughly where Jonah's hometown was. Nineveh is all the way up to the right on the eastern banks there in the circle, uh, eastern banks of the Tigris. If you're looking for it on a modern map, you can find it across, from, across the river from the modern city of Mosul, Iraq. The distance between Nineveh and Israel is roughly 550 miles, which would take, probably using the normal modes of travel, about a month to get there. Nineveh is described as a very large city, and verse 3 says that it would take three days to go through it. Now, according to archaeological discoveries, the city has been discovered, and the wall protecting it would have been about 7.75 miles around, which is not really big enough to cover three days of just walking around it or through it. So to help understand what this might, why this might look like a discrepancy, there have been some different solutions presented. 
For example, the biblical record might not have just been talking about the city of Nineveh proper, but it could have included areas surrounding that, the city, like what we would call suburbs. You know, if you think about Chicago, Chicago, the city itself, isn't like that big necessarily, but when you add in all the suburbs, it's huge. Another prob- probability or possibility is that the three days would have been the time that uh, it would have taken to walk through all of the city, to go through all of the neighborhoods of the city. That would take you about three days to do. There's one other idea that is out there as well, and it's more of a literary kind of thing, because they talk about the three days mirroring the same time that was spent inside the belly of the fish, the three days and three nights inside the fish. Now, I hadn't thought about that before, but it would make sense that the author's making that comparison between the two. And I say this because of how we've seen the book is written. Like, it is very, like, literary, literarily? It's just well-written. Um, <laughs> uh, we've seen the incredible use of language already with repetitions and wordplay and things like that. So even if the three days is a literal three days, there is an allusion to the time that Jonah spent in the belly of the great fish. But Jonah has faithfully, finally, made the trip to the great city. And now is the time to see whether or not he's going to follow through with his commitment to bring the message to the people of Nineveh. And he does in verse 4. It says that Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Another movie I really like. I'm all into the movies today. Uh, anybody ever seen the Steve Martin, John Candy movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? Anybody seen that? Okay, I cannot believe you guys would admit to that because it's rated R. So, come on, people, we're a church. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love this movie. Um, kind of kidding. It does have a lot of language. But anyway, there's a scene from the movie where the two are driving in this old station wagon. They're trying to get home for Thanksgiving. And somehow John Candy's character unknowingly starts going the wrong way down the highway. And there's this couple that's driving the right way. And they're like yelling and honking, trying to get their attention. And they keep yelling, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. You're going to kill somebody. But John Candy's character says, he's drunk. How does he know which way we're going? And he dismisses them. That is until two semis appear in front of them, and they narrowly escape getting killed. I wanted to show the clip, but I'm afraid we'll get kicked off our live stream if we do that. So, sorry. (laughs) Um, Not because of the language or anything. Just They're really particular on copyright stuff. But um, but that is the message. You're going the wrong way, right? That's the message that we take to people that we know are headed the wrong direction, right? Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he's bringing God's message to the Ninevites. And it's that message, like, you're going the wrong way. It's eight words in English and only five in Hebrew. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight-word sermon. And I know some of you are thinking, man, that'd be great. Now, truthfully, Jonah's sermon is probably a little bit longer than that. Um, This just seems to be like a summary of what he was probably saying. And on the surface... It does seem like a pretty grim pronouncement, right, of that, he, that he's giving here. Forty more days until your city is overthrown. But there's two things in this announcement from Jonah that are important to notice. The first is the word overthrown. There are two ways that that word can be translated. It can mean that the city will be destroyed, like whether it's from an outside army or something even beyond that. It's the same word that gets used when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed in the book of Genesis. Um, They were destroyed by the Lord because of their wicked ways, right? 
But there's a second way that it can be used, and, and it can also mean to turn around. The city itself could have such an upheaval that it would look completely different than it did before. Not just destroyed, but better. The second thing with the announcement to notice is that Jonah spoke of a 40-day time frame. Now, why would God give the city 40 days to prepare for their destruction? He didn't do that with Sodom and Gomorrah. They didn't get 40 days. They were just destroyed. While there's no reason given for their destruction in the explicit message of Jonah, there's no call for repentance. There's no mention of any deliverance. That 40 days does mean something. Why would they be given 40 days? To answer that, I think we should look at the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 says that if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. God wants his people to come home to him. His desire is that all would come to faith in him. The Apostle Peter writes about that in his second letter in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. He says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And praise the Lord, he's patient. His hope is that everyone would come to repentance. That seems to be something who, people who argue against the Bible, they, they, they tend to use... You know, they, they don't see that part of the Lord, right? They, they see the destruction. They see the evil in the world. They fail to see God's mercy and grace. Or you have people who say the New Testament God is different from the Old Testament God. The Old Testament one is just the fire and brimstone, and the New Testament one is just love, love, love all the time. But that's not what you see when you look at the full story, the full picture of Scripture we see the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever throughout the whole thing, whose desire is that all come to repentance and faith in him. The Ninevites had 40 days before their great city would be overturned. They could take that seriously, that warning. Or they could kill this prophet, remain in their violent ways, and, and hope that they don't get destroyed. So what direction are they going to take? How did the Ninevites respond to Jonah's message? We'll see that in just a second. I want to talk about a story from World War II. During uh, the darkest days of World War II, defeat by the enemies seemed to be a possibility. Hitler had conquered the Western continental Europe. Invasion of England seemed near. Allied forces were retreating from North Africa. American forces had been driven out of the Philippines. At that time, there was a pastor in Alexandria, Louisiana, which had one of the most co concentrated troop training locations in the nation. He learned that many of the troops had battery-powered radios, and so in an effort to reach these young men with the gospel, their church purchased time for a live broadcast of their Saturday night, Sunday night message. The nearby Louisiana College, there was an elderly lady who worked uh, in the college dining room who was a faithful listener to that broadcast. And each Monday morning, she would talk enthusiastically to the dean of the women's college, a woman named Miss Struther, about the previous evening's message. 
During that time, the preacher saw a cartoon of an out of, from an out-of-town newspaper of Uncle Sam kneeling in prayer at the front pew of a church. So the following Sunday, he preached on Uncle, Sam's, Uncle Sam at the mourner's bench. That was his t- title. In the sermon, he ran the gamut of the sins of the nation, and his theme was that unless the nation repented of its sins, God would not permit it to win the war. The message made quite an impression in the area. The next morning, the lady in the college dining room said nothing to Miss Struther about the sermon. She had talked to her previously, so Miss Struther asked her if she'd heard it, and the lady said, well, I heard part of it. And she expressed some surprise. Well, I thought you liked to hear him preach. And she said, oh, yes, I do. She said, well, why didn't you hear all of it? And she said, well, Miss, Miss Hattie, I, I knew he was telling the truth, and I was scared to death, so I just turned him off. The Ninevites heard the message. Did they believe that Jonah was telling the truth, or did they just turn him off? Well, let's find out. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The Ninevites believed God. That's always where it needs to start. You've got to believe first. Believe that he's going to do what he says. It's a similar faith as Abraham when God called him out of his hometown in Ur to travel wherever God was going to lead him. It's the same faith of Abraham that when the Lord told him he would have an heir, even though they were well past childbearing age, he believed him. It says in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Jonah's message, as simple as it was, took hold of the people of Nineveh. In verse 5, we see the overview of the people's response to that message. They believed, they proclaimed a nationwide fast, and everyone was to put on sackcloth. And then, as we continue, we'll see the response of the king when he heard the message. Verse 6 says that when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Four things that the king does here. He rose up from his throne. So he gets up from his throne. He, he took off his royal robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, which would have been like a garment made of goat's hair, or camel's hair, typically worn by a poor person or somebody in mourning. Then he sat down in the dust. What you see is the highest person in the land humbling himself with everybody else. Then he issues that proclamation that everybody should fast and put on sackcloth, not just the people, but also the animals, the herds, and flocks. That should show you the level of belief and desperation that they had. But all that is really external stuff. That's not really changing anything. It's just it can be a show. Not necessarily true repentance. But then the king also implores his people to call urgently on God and to give up their evil ways and their violence. Now remember, this is not a Hebrew nation. They were not followers of the Lord. Also, if you remember from the first week, we talked about how they were an incredibly violent nation doing unthinkable, inhuman things to their defeated enemies. 
But you see, that's what repentance is. It's calling on the Lord and then turning away from the sins that you're committing. Like knowingly doing a 180, away from sin toward God. After ordering these things, the king says in his proclamation in verse 9, who knows, God may yet relent with, and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Does that sound familiar? Because it's very similar to what the captain of the ship that Jonah chartered said as he urged Jonah to pray to his God. And both of them end with the exact same thing, so that we will not perish. I read somewhere that a lost person shouldn't presume on being saved in a last-minute deathbed regeneration, but also they should never give up hope because God is ever ready to save those who who turn to him in true repentance and faith even as the moment of death looms near. So we've seen the message. We've seen how the king and his people react, but what does God do? Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The Ninevites believed God, and God relented from bringing his destruction on them. The hand of judgment was removed, albeit temporarily, from Nineveh. And I say temporarily because within 150 years, Nineveh would return to that way of violence and wickedness. The book of Nahum, there's another prophecy against Nineveh, and this time it is destroyed. That doesn't mean that this repentance wasn't real. It doesn't mean that it wasn't genuine, because it was. But over many years, they went back to their old ways. And as one writer puts it, a return to sin needs a corresponding return to repentance. But for now, Jonah's message was delivered, and a city was saved. And that would make for a wonderful ending to this story. But we've still got one more chapter to go through, which we'll talk about next week. So what can we learn from this passage? First, there is a seriousness to sin that we cannot take for granted. While the sin committed by the Ninevites was vile, even to modern standards, we've got to realize that all sin grieves the Lord. And it separates you from God. So we need to take sin probably a lot more serious than we do. This passage also shows us that we need people to warn others, to people who are outside God's will. If we look at this from the perspective of Jonah, we need to be ready and willing to be used for the kingdom of God, to warn others of the consequences of living lives apart from the Lord. We don't do it just to scare them into following God, but we present something to them that is far greater than what this world can offer. We've got to be available to do that, though. We have to be ready. The message doesn't have to be complicated, as we see. We've just got to be willing to go and take it. The other side of this are for those who may not believe. Maybe you're here today and you're in that camp. You're like Nineveh, probably not with all the violence and everything, but but you're living a life of sin apart from the Lord. And maybe today you're starting to think, you know, maybe God's working on you, working on your heart, and you know what you're doing isn't best. You know know that living life this way isn't going to work out that well. And to that, I would say, be like the Ninevites. Take to heart the message. 
and do three things like they did. First, believe. Believe God. That's the inward change. That's happening here in your heart. Believe God in what he says. The second thing is to proclaim. They proclaim the fast, right? But even if it's just like proclaiming what you believe, articulate it. And the last thing is to put on. They put on the sackcloth, but whatever it is, like that outward faith, show it. Believe it, proclaim, and put it on. As we close out, I want to look at a passage from Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41. Some of, the te- some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment in this generation, with this generation, and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They want a sign, even though he'd already given them a lot. But he tells them they're not going to get one except that of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus was going to be in the grave for that same time frame. And amazingly, he says that the Ninevites are going to be standing up at the judgment. So definitely some of them were saved. Because as Jesus says, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. An eight-word sermon, and Jonah affected a city. But something greater than Jonah is here. One who would spend three days in a tomb, and yet he would return from the grave. Someone who, instead of just affecting a city, has affected the entire world for the last 2,000 years. So I ask, like Jonah, are you prepared to say yes to God to warn others of his wrath? God can use even the simplest of message to change people's hearts. Or today, are you ready to turn from your sin like the Ninevites? If you are, then turn to Jesus. Because like Jonah said, salvation comes from the Lord, and it is only through him. So this time, we we come to our our time in our service where we're going to take communion. And uh, like you all have noticed, we didn't pass out communion um, because we did the best thing, we ran out of the the other stuff, and so um, we're gonna you we're gonna do it kind of like we used to, long time ago before COVID. Um, we're gonna pass it around um, instead of having the all the bread in the middle though, like we used to have. Um, there's actually gonna be two cups in in the communion tray as it gets passed to you. So they're they're just stacked on top of each other. So the bread is in the cup. In the, on the bottom, and then the, you'll see where the juice is. Um, you know, you're smart. You can figure it out. So there are two cups per hole, so make sure you grab both, and that will give you both the bread and, and the juice and everything. Let me pray for us, and, and then we'll have communion. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we just, we thank you, especially for those of us here today that are Christians, which are, are most of us. We thank you that somebody took the time to, to share the message of your son with us so that we could, like the Ninevites, believe. And you welcomed us back into your family, Lord, with our faith. We thank you so much, Father, for that. And help us to be able to share that good news with others. We're, we're going to talk about that some next week as well, as you know. But help us to, to not want to withhold that from people. Help us, help it overflow in our lives that we would, you know, the message is just too good to hold on to. We need to share that because you are patient. You were patient with us and you are still patient with everybody else who's going to come to know and love you and, and rejoin your family. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus and what he did on the cross. We are thankful that even before then, he, he instituted that symbol of the new covenant, the, the bread representing his body that was broken for us, the juice or the, the wine that represents the blood that was spilled for us. And we rest in that sacrifice that he made, knowing that our sins were nailed to that cross with him once for all. We can turn from those and turn to you. You have forgiven us. Thank you so much, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.